You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. In this month's episode, we're focusing on healthcare and the often unseen engineering that ensures clinicians and healthcare providers can help us live long and healthy lives. I talk with healthcare science workforce lead, Joe Young, from Health Education England about the important role clinical engineers play in UK hospitals and the importance of creating opportunities for young people to take up careers in healthcare engineering, as well as the barriers facing engineers when it comes to technology adoption in the healthcare sector. And Carly Nettleford, the IMACE policy officer, switches places to ask me about the institution's biomedical engineering division, my thoughts on why engineers need to be making strategic decisions in hospitals and what medical devices and technology we will be seeing in the future. But first, let's take a look at what's happening globally in healthcare engineering and the medtech industry. Healthcare services across the globe are under increasing technical, financial, societal and political pressures, regardless of the size or wealth of the nation. These pressures are being driven by rapidly changing population demographics and the constant advancement of medical technology that has enabled previously intractable conditions to be treated. As a society, we are expecting to live longer with more active lifestyles and as a result, age-related illnesses are driving the care provided to us. Lifestyle-related illnesses, such as obesity and diabetes, are also becoming more pronounced, particularly amongst our younger population, and without significant changes to our care provision systems now, primary and social care services are likely to become overwhelmed. On top of that, we have a more health-aware society who are looking for new ways to address their conditions through interconnected tools and equipment and a legislative system being driven by and driving rapid digitisation of our care providers. All this is putting significant pressure on those that take care of us. The pace of change across healthcare provision is expected to accelerate in the coming years, particularly in light of the current pandemic. This level of rapid change will require comprehensive strategies from government, regulatory authorities and healthcare providers to allow for timely development, evaluation, implementation and regulation of life-saving technologies. Whilst challenging, some pressures often create new opportunities for better, safer and more universally accessible care. Engineers are already addressing some of the world's major healthcare challenges with novel and innovative solutions, finding new ways to sense and measure disease, as well as to monitor your health wherever you are in the world. But they are often not recognised for their contribution or given the opportunity to take greater ownership of the implementation processes of technology, where they could have long-term and wide-ranging impact. So what are these unseen and unheard engineers doing to help us live long and healthy lives? 
Well, the UK medtech industry is booming, thanks in part to the Life Sciences Industrial Strategy of 2017 and numerous NHS strategic plans developed in the last five years. Turnover continues to increase ahead of international trends and now totals 6% of the global market. Ireland, Switzerland, Denmark and Germany are all leading medtech employment regions, with the UK in seventh place. Here, the industry comprises of around 3,000 companies, directly employing approximately 100,000 people. Around one-third of these are employed in research and development and or manufacturing and are generally small businesses with less than 150 people. The European medical technology market was estimated at roughly €120 billion Euros in 2018. That's 27% of the world's medtech market. And to put that into context, China has 6% and the USA 43% of the market. The average global R&D investment rate, that's R&D spending as a percentage of sales, is estimated to be around 8%. The speed at which innovation is being developed is phenomenal, with typical products having a life cycle of only 18 to 24 months before an improved product becomes available. In 2019, nearly 14,000 medtech patent applications were filed with the European Patent Office, the EPO, representing a 0.9% growth in patent applications compared to the previous year. The medtech technology field accounts for 7.7% of the total number of applications, second highest among all the sectors in Europe. In comparison, around 7,700 applications were filed in the pharmaceutical field and around 6,800 in the field of biotechnology. 39% of all patent applications were filed from EPO countries, including the EU27, UK, Norway and Switzerland, and 61% from other countries, with the majority of applications filed from the US. So what about the technology? What is this marvellous industry developing and how will it revolutionise medicine and the way we live our lives? Well, Some of the most common things in hospitals you might associate with engineering are things like diagnostic devices such as life signs monitoring and therapeutic medical devices for drug delivery or imaging equipment such as MRI and CT scanning. But there are some significant emerging trends which are having a direct impact on the dynamics of the medical device industry at the moment, including the increasing use of AI and machine learning in medical devices, increasing acceptance of wearable technologies the growing use of miniaturised tools and the rapid adoption of 3D printing in both technical and biological fields. One revolution that's really happening is miniaturisation. Take the pacemaker, first invented in the 1950s. It was powered from an external belt power supply that was the size of a brick and required risky open-heart surgery to place the electrodes and later the pacing device against the heart. But as electronics and particularly batteries have become smaller and smaller, engineers have been able to vastly reduce the scale of this technology. In March of 2018, the first in-heart pacemaker was fitted, which did not involve open-heart surgery. Not only that, but the device itself was no bigger than a paracetamol, enabling the patient to just get on with their lives. Modern prosthetics not only use the latest lightweight materials such as carbon fibre, but also have microprocessors on board which control the knee, and in the latest Blatchford leg, the ankle as well. This computer control enables the leg to adjust to different surfaces and inclinations instantly, within one gait cycle. This means the prosthetic leg behaves almost identically to a normal leg, 
and it's virtually impossible to detect the user has a prosthetic limb. Now, I'm sure many of you will have heard of regenerative medicine or seen something about it on TV anyway. Regenerative medicine is a relatively new science which takes our very own stem cells, the building blocks of our existence, and triggers them into growing into any type of cell and thus organ we require. By using stem cells, our body will not reject the grown tissue like it would a donor organ, and so the long-term benefits could revolutionise how we live. RM has until recently been the domain of laboratory science, focusing mostly on small samples and repeatable processes, but other, relatively new enabling technologies has given RM the opportunity to fully realise its potential. Combining stem cell therapies and 3D printing techniques has opened up a whole new avenue of research for regenerative medicine. We now have the capacity to print complex vascular structures that could change the way we treat heart disease, serious injury and even Alzheimer's. And skin grafts could be a thing of the past as this technology will enable clinicians to 3D bioprint skin cells directly onto a wound, reducing operation and healing time. The robotic surgery market attracted major investment in 2019, with more than $6 billion spent on new platforms. And non-imaging diagnostic companies, things like wearable and data-driven technologies, outpaced most of the medtech industry in 2019, both in revenue growth and a share of early-stage financing, highlighting the technology's importance and growing interest in personalised medtech innovation. AI also remains a top area of innovation, with at least 33 AI algorithms receiving US regulatory approval since the beginning of 2018. With 40% of the NHS's expenditure going on medicines, equipment and infrastructure, the need for a workforce with technical and medical skills is growing rapidly. The introduction of engineering approaches into clinical care could have a fundamental effect on the way we treat patients. In fact, in an influential government report by Eric Topol, it was recognised that clinicians too will need to embrace technical skills by becoming multidisciplinary in their training. In this way, our healthcare professionals, trained in both clinical and technical competencies, will be able to ensure patient safety through the implementation of quality processes, providing value for money through benchmarking and ensuring faster access to medtech through trialling and product development. In this way, healthcare engineers will become more visible, providing direct services to the patient at the bedside and ensuring that long-term technical strategies are implemented throughout the healthcare service. But with all this exciting innovation, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that as engineers, we have a duty of care and a responsibility to do no harm to society, just like clinicians. The debate on the ethics of medical devices and healthcare technologies has been raging for many years, in a world where people are becoming more isolated, where our personal data is no longer personal and healthcare provision is becoming more stratified, do we want or are we ready for medical technology to be part of our everyday lives? The late great Heinz Wolf said, there is no such thing as a care machine. Whilst we cannot stop the inevitable, we have a duty as engineers to ensure that society is ready for the technology we develop and that these developments are for the right reasons. The healthcare engineering community will continue to ensure that technology keeps us alive and well. And it is good to hear that the three leading institutions who accredit engineers in healthcare, the IMACHEE, IPEM and IAT, have all begun to work together to raise the profile of engineering in healthcare. 
and in the NHS, like in many other healthcare services across the world, the UK's National School for Healthcare Science is ensuring the NHS and medtech communities have a highly skilled workforce that future generations of young engineers can aspire to joining. I believe, ultimately, we all have a vested interest in ensuring the patient has a safe and straightforward experience, surrounded by the right technology, designed and maintained by a skilled team of technical and medical experts as they pass through our hospitals. Because one day, that patient will be us. So what's in the news this month? Let's take a look at some of the non-COVID-related tech that's hitting the headlines. Well, there's some exciting work going on in the Asia-Pacific region in cardiac device engineering to understand the behaviour of new devices before they are introduced into the patient's body. This is often achieved using simulation techniques or in silico medicine. Cardiovascular diseases or CVDs are a group of ailments of the heart and blood vessels and is the leading cause of disease in the world, taking an estimated 17.9 million lives annually. India is no exception. Some aspects of the CVD epidemic in India are particularly cause for concern, as the epidemiological transition from predominantly infectious disease conditions to non-communicable disease has occurred over a rather brief period of time, and premature mortality in terms of years of life lost because of CVD is on the rise. In 2016, it was estimated that the number of people suffering with CVDs was nearly 54.5 million, and one in four deaths in India are now because of CVDs. As a result, the medical industry is starting to embrace the idea of personalised medicine and in silico testing. Personalised medicine is the idea of tailoring a medical treatment for the individual, not the masses. To achieve this level of optimization, Medical practitioners use simulations, models and digital twins of their patients to perform in silico tests. Multiphysics simulations can be used to determine the flow pattern, turbulence, stagnation area, shear stress, wall deformation and turbulent eddy dissipation of the heart. This example of personalised medicine results in improved surgical effectiveness and a better quality of life for each patient. Modelling and simulation companies like ANSYS are working alongside hospitals in India to help them understand the behaviour of the heart and to solve the problem of CVDs. A team of biomedical engineers at the University of Sydney has developed a plasma technology which allows hydrogels, a jelly-like substance which is structurally similar to soft tissue in the human body, to be attached to polymeric materials, allowing manufactured devices to better interact with surrounding human tissue. To function properly in the body, a manufactured implant, whether it's an artificial hip, a fabricated spinal disc or engineered tissue, must bond and interact with appropriate surrounding tissues and living cells. When that doesn't happen, an implant may fail or worse still, be rejected by the body. Worldwide, implant failures and rejections are a significant cost to health systems, placing large financial and health burdens on patients. The team in Sydney with counterparts in the USA, successfully combined hydrogels, including those made from silk, with Teflon and polystyrene polymers. Hydrogels are notoriously difficult to work with, as they are inherently weak and structurally unstable. They don't easily attach to solids, which means they often can't be used in mechanically demanding applications, such as in cartilage or bone tissue engineering. 
Using plasma technology, the team have created a hybrid structure combining hydrogels with hard, solid polymers, giving hydrogels the all-important structural integrity and mechanical support that enables them to mimic the characteristics of natural tissues within the body. The plasma process is carried out in a single step, so generates zero waste and does not require additional chemicals that can be harmful to the environment. Biomedical devices, organ implants, biosensors and tissue engineering scaffolds that can now be functionalised with hydrogel are set to benefit from this new innovation. The team will be progressing their area of research and will further develop the technology to combine hydrogels with non-polymeric solid materials such as ceramics and metals. And finally, Biomedical Engineering Master's student Catherine Gordon-Grant is driving the development of frugal biodesign in Africa. She is part of the Medical Device Laboratory's Open Air Ventilation Project at the University of Cape Town, UCT, which started its work on ventilators well before the lockdown kicked in. The lab's members identified the need for a low-cost, continuous positive airway pressure solution using off-the-shelf components such as aquarium pumps and makes use of existing hospital infrastructure to give critically ill patients a continuous stream of pressurised air and high levels of oxygen through a standard mask. Low-cost accessible solutions are important for countries like South Africa because they have very small medtech industries and import over 90% of their medical devices. Low-cost solutions can save the healthcare system an enormous amount of money and improve accessibility for people, particularly in rural areas of the country. We look forward to hearing more about what's going on at the University of Cape Town in the future. And I couldn't really end this segment without giving a big shout out to all of those clinical engineers across the world who are preparing for the Global Clinical Engineering Day on the 21st of October. It's run by the International Federation of Medical and Biological Engineering. This is an all-day event that passes from country to country as they reach noon and lasts up to 1pm, making it a truly 24-hour event. The clinical engineers within the NHS host the UK's contribution and this year they will have videos and presentations showcasing the work they do. So if you want to find out more about engineering in healthcare, then this is a great opportunity to join in. We've put some links to the event in the episode notes. Well, the tables have truly been turned on me today. For those of you who don't know, my day job is in the medtech industry and I'm very active within the institution's biomedical engineering division. So with this month's episode on healthcare engineering, Carly Nettleford, the institution's policy officer, decided to ask me a few questions about the sector, what the future of technology will look like and why the time is right for engineers across the healthcare and medtech sectors to start driving strategic decisions in technology adoption. Hello, good morning, Helen. It's so nice to have you back here. Thank you. And it's it's a bit of a, a weird thing being on the receiving end of questions for once. It, <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. So I'm going to go straight in with the first question that I have for you. Okay. So as you are the vice chair of the institution's biomedical engineering division, what does the division focus on and how are you supporting the biomedical engineering community? Well, that's a very good question to start off with. Um, for those who are not familiar with biomedical engineering, it's it's a very multidisciplinary and, and relatively new area 
uh, of engineering compared to the more traditional sectors um, that we're all very familiar with. In simple terms, um, biomedical engineering is the integration of engineering techniques and methods uh, with medical knowledge of the human body. So it covers areas such as things like hip replacements, robotic surgery, sports engineering, the design of medical devices, of course, and, and also the modeling and sensing of biological systems. And there's, there's just everything in between that as well. So it's, it's a, a very varied field, very multidisciplinary. In terms of the biomedical engineering division itself, which is we normally call it the BMED for short, it's one of 18 uh, divisions and groups within the institution. Um, so it's one of the largest groups of professional biomedical engineers in the UK. So it's a very large group. We're very multidisciplinary. It's a very exciting field to be in. Um, the BMED has got two committees, its um, main members board, and also a young members panel as well. And through these, uh, we bring together engineers from clinical, academic and industrial settings. Um, and we discuss things like the latest advances and issues in medical devices and technology. And we also support the professional development of our members through their careers, right from students, right through to senior practitioners. And we also produce uh, policies. Uh, and we help uh, the institution to write policy on healthcare-related issues and biomedical engineering issues. Um, and these are things concerned with the profession and like the two policy statements that are, are just being launched, uh, one on workforce and, and one on technology adoption. So this is the sort of work that the committee does. And we also organise quite a few events as well, uh, which are always fun. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, they, they are really great and it really brings together the, the community. And um, we have a very popular conference on incontinence, uh, which is a big area for engineers, believe <laughs> it or not. And also um, our healthcare technologies competition for students and early career engineers, which is run by our young members board. And we also promote biomedical engineering careers and encourage students to, to come into the profession as well. But I think one of the the big um, aspects of what we do is we collaborate quite a lot with other engineering institutions um, and other organisations as well. But we, we're very close with uh, IPEM, which is the Institute for Physics and Engineering in Medicine. And we work very closely with them because there are a lot of clinical engineers who, who are in their institution as well. So it's nice to have that broader family of engineers as well across different institutions. So that in a nutshell really is is what the biomedical engineering division does. Well that sounds great. That sounds very inclusive and like there's some there would be something for everybody. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and that um brings me on to my next question. So you you covered a lot for both people who are familiar and not familiar with the medical technology industry. But could you give us a little insight about the size and scale of the industry, both in the UK and globally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the UK, the medical technology sector is made up, I mean, this varies, but it's made up of around sort of 3,000 SMEs and it's mostly small businesses uh, in this sector. There are a few very large companies, the ones that you will have heard of, but, um, but mostly it's very small companies. And, and this is growing on a daily basis. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will write in and, and uh, correct me with, with some of my numbers today. <laughs> 
it the the sector employs well over a hundred thousand people, and that's in the the main core part of the technology development business. But there are also probably around thirty to forty thousand people working in the sort of support services, so supplying materials and equipment into the medical device manufacturers. So it's it's a very large, very thriving. Um, industry. And it's estimated kind of annual turnover is around 18 billion, uh, which makes the, yeah, which makes the UK one of the the big players in the medtech industry. And and so as a country, in terms of our size, we're punching well above our weight uh, in in terms of the medtech manufacturing and technology development, which is, which is great, really. The US and the EU I would say are probably the two largest exporters of of medtech, and um, their markets are somewhere around sort of 130 billion, 100 billion pounds. So that puts it into context in terms of where we sit. Obviously, the US and AU are, are much larger, but I would say conservatively in terms of the global market uh, for medtech, it's around 350 billion to 400 billion pound market. So. The UK sits very well within the industry, but it's a huge industry. And um, there are some who are already predicting that the the medtech industry itself will overtake pharmaceuticals, certainly in size and value, within the next five years. So considering the the size of the pharmaceutical industry, that that's a huge step to take for, for medical devices. In terms of medical devices, there there are about well, about 500,000 patented medical devices and pieces of medical equipment in Europe alone. That's CE marked devices that can be used in hospitals or in healthcare settings. Um, but hospitals themselves can have tens of thousands of pieces of equipment available to them for patient care. So um, that takes obviously a lot of looking after from from the engineers who work in these uh, hospital settings. And they're often referred to as clinical engineers within the NHS. Um, Outside that, in the medtech industry, we tend to refer to them as biomedical engineers, but there's lots of titles um, which can get very confusing. I think to give the listeners an idea of, of the cost of healthcare, uh, from a patient care point of view, the World Health Organization has estimated that the average global healthcare spend is rising between four and six percent per year. So wow. year on year, there's an increase, and at that rate of growth, it's expected that society is going to spend over eight trillion pounds on healthcare products and services by 2022. So we're only two years away from that. We were already in the trillions of pounds in terms of money spent on healthcare. Um, so, in terms of the value of uh, of technology to actual cost of care, there is quite a vast difference. But that just gives you uh, an idea of of how the industry sits uh, within the UK and globally. Yeah, that was very informative, and that really does show the scale of the industry. And I think it will give a lot of people. Um, the opportunity if they wanted to become clinical or biomedical engineers to show that there's a lot of room for their progression and growth. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Which is great for our listeners. So the government have a plan called a tech vision plan, which I've read a little bit about, but could you tell us your thoughts on this plan and what effects do you think this will have in the UK? 
do you think this is something that could be replicated internationally as well? Well, it's the the Tech Vision Plan was launched actually a, a few years ago. Really, um, two thousand eighteen was really when the the government first kind of put this idea forward, and it sets out a desire to introduce a minimum technical standard that digital services and IT systems within the NHS have to meet. Now, certainly the IT systems within the NHS um, have been far from being optimal, I would say. And I think <laughs> many people would probably agree with me on that. They, they've, for a long time, uh, the, the, the system really has not met the sort of standard that would be required, certainly in industry. Um, and it, it varies from not just from trust to trust, but but also across the whole NHS network, you know, and and that covers, you know, uh, the social care and the GPs. Um, so it's 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 been a poor network, let's say. Yeah. So in principle, I think the drive to to raise the availability and quality of digital services and the IT infrastructure um, to at least a minimum st- standard is is a very admirable goal from from the government, um, and it's also a necessity, of course. But personally, I kind of feel that the vision falls short, really, of its full potential. I think there were some missed opportunities back in 2018, I think, to to engage with the engineering community within the NHS uh, to really get to the root of technology interoperability and to drive not just change in IT and the digitizing of patient records, but the way all technology communicates within the NHS. And I, I'm, I'm talking about digital uh, medical devices and, and remote healthcare monitoring here. So, so I think whilst... The government are making steps. Um, I, I think you know there is still a lot to do, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I think you know it will come in time, and and there's some very good examples of trusts uh, really making headway uh, with the integration of technology uh, within their trust. But that is patchy, you know, and yeah. uh, and I think the government could have been more ambitious in its vision uh, and engaged with the three. Uh, three and a half thousand um, clinical engineers and the several thousand uh, estates and facilities engineers that the NHS have to really develop a robust plan for uh, technology driven, um, for a technology driven NHS. So in terms of how we compare globally or what lessons we could learn, it's, it's a tricky one because the NHS in terms of its service provision is very unique. It, in what it does, um, yeah. you know, free at the, free at the point of care service. Um, there are very few systems globally that that work in the same way. Um, I think all healthcare services really aspire to uh, ensure that they provide the best care and and therefore the best technology they can to their patients. So I think you know we we all can learn from each other. I think the clinical engineering community globally is very well connected, and I think they. Um, there's a growing drive, I think, from within that community to share best practice. But I think the challenge is to get their voice heard within government. And that's really where the challenge lies in order to improve this tech vision that the government uh, in, in the UK has had. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think you've spoken a lot about medical technology that's available. So yeah, that leads me nicely on to our next question. What would you say are the most revolutionary healthcare technologies you've seen in the last 10 years or so? 
And do you feel engineers across medtech and clinical sectors could take more responsibility for the adoption of technology into healthcare systems? Well, that's that's a very good question, I think. Uh, <laughs> for me, I think uh, in terms of the most revolutionary technologies, I suppose one of them would be robotic surgery. It's it's definitely up there as a revolutionary technology. Whilst it's um, it's not widely adopted technology, mainly because it's very expensive, it has enabled surgeons to perform operations that um, many would just not have been able to attempt in the past. So yeah. I think that's, that's saved an awful lot of lives uh, over the last few years. It's also uh, has the added benefit, really, of reducing recovery times for patients so they don't need to spend as much time in hospital care, which is also a major cost saving to the hospital. So introducing the technology, whilst expensive, I think sort of from a cost benefit point of view, actually has the added benefit of ensuring patients can return home much more quickly. So I think that's that's a really good piece of technology. And I think, oh, technology such as, uh, you've got me thinking now, there's, there's so many opportunities. <laughs> um, artificial pancreas, which was uh, developed about 2016, will radically change the way people manage their diabetes. And diabetes is one of the major concerns for healthcare practitioners globally. Now, this device monitors the glucose levels and in, in a person's body and then automatically delivers insulin to the patient. So it can also send data to the clinician as well. So you, you can monitor the patient remotely. Uh, and if the, the clinician then sees that there's some fluctuations or something like that, they can then contact the patient and say, you know, you need to come in, we need to see you. So from that point of view, I think that's going to be a piece of technology that radically changes the way that we look after patients in the community as opposed to in, in um, acute care in the future. In terms of engineers taking more responsibility, well, um, firstly, I think, that, as I've mentioned before, I think they need to raise their voices quite significantly. And I, I hope that the institution and and the policy work that that the BMED does with the institution is helping to raise that voice on their behalf. So for, for me, that's very important. I think, secondly, I think taking the lead in their respective trusts, hospitals or wherever they work um, to really drive strategic decision-making will be a really important step forward for engineers. And what we really need to see happen is some of those engineers becoming chief engineers, ideally at board level within their hospital, so that they can drive the strategic objectives for technology adoption right from the top. Absolutely. Yeah. And if if we're going to ensure that patients get the right technology and um, hospitals purchase the right technology, then they're going to need to have engineers leading the way. So ultimately, I would like to see engineers having parity with their clinical colleagues. I'm kind of sticking my head above the parapet here a little, <laughs> but um, you know they're already working very closely with their clinical colleagues, but I see them working side by side to ensure the patient has a safe and straightforward journey to recovery. That's ultimately what I would like to see. Absolutely. I think that's a great answer. Um, personally, coming from a field engineer point of view, I think it would be important to have more engineers making important decisions because they work on the front line. So they're able to have more of an insight personally. Yeah, absolutely. I know many people are going to be extremely health conscious, specifically with the latest global pandemic. 
So that leads me to ask you, do you feel the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way healthcare providers and governments are adopting new technologies? Absolutely. I think radically it has changed uh, almost overnight, really, in some respects. Um, There's been a huge shift uh, by the government to address technology adoption. And we've seen that with the ventilator challenge, for example, and the new devices that are being developed for uh, rapid testing of uh, COVID-19. But we have, of course, seen some total disasters, (laughs) in all honesty, Um, where things, where the wrong devices or equipment has been specified and then where it's it's been unusable by medical staff or the time needed to develop it and approve those new devices has been massively underestimated. So I think with COVID, it's shown that it is possible to get technology developed at speed and scale. But to achieve that, you need the right experts in place to ensure it's fit for purpose and it's of the highest quality standard. I I was very fortunate. Uh, I I worked with uh, the clinical engineering team at Nightingale London um, from from March to, to May of this year. And I saw firsthand how the engineers worked to really accurately communicate the details of equipment and its performance and all the things that they were finding that worked, that didn't work and so on. And the speed at which they were disseminating that to their various networks was absolutely amazing. So I think government could definitely benefit from having a few more engineers particularly in SAGE, for example, the, which is the advisory panel to the, to the government, I think they need to have more engineers on there uh, as well as scientists to really ensure that the application of technology uh, is well understood before strategic decisions are made. You know, I, th- I think that would be uh, a much better balance to, to have those engineers embedded in government policy areas so that they can make those strategic decisions much faster in the future. Yeah, 100%. We definitely need more engineers. There are big changes coming for medtech companies in regards to standards and regulations in the UK for developing devices and diagnosis tools. How do you think this is going to affect the UK medtech industry? Do you think it will affect companies globally as well? Well, Carly, this is an absolutely huge topic that I think we could have an entire podcast show about, <laughs> really, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a really, in, in a short space of time, it's a very difficult question to answer. In fact, last week I, I attended a webinar to, to hear about the latest updates on the EU standards because the situation is changing almost on a weekly basis. And, you know, I, I work in this sector myself, so I understand uh, and I have to be aware of what's going on, but for some of the small manufacturers and things, how they manage to keep up is anybody's guess, really, to be honest. Um, the the MDR, which is uh, the incoming regulatory standard for uh, medical devices, as opposed to the IVDR, which is for diagnose, uh, diagnostic tools. So the, the, there's two there's two uh, regulations that are, that are being developed, but the MDR is the one that focuses on medical devices. The big problem is that there has been a pushback uh, of the MDR being adopted by all the EU member states. Um, So it should have been in place now, but it's been pushed back 12 months. So it won't be adopted until next year, um, by which time the UK will have left the EU because of Brexit. 
So this means that the government could reject the adoption of, of it. I don't think they will. It's, it would be a silly thing to do, but the potential is there. But I think the greatest problem at the moment really is that our med tech manufacturers are just in limbo. Um, they're struggling to get products and services uh, CE marked. Um, there's a waiting list for the organizations known as notified bodies, who are the ones that kind of check <laughs> that they're doing the right thing in terms of their application for CE marking. So it's really, it's quite a mess really at the moment with with the, the regulations. The new MDR is much tighter in terms of its qualifying of products, which is obviously a good thing. And in fact, the UK advocated for that when the MDR was first proposed several years ago. So we, we've we been fundamental in getting the change, but we're not necessarily going to benefit from those changes. Um, but I think it's not really the MDR that's the issue. It will be us being outside the EU right. that's going to be it's going to radically affect the way the medtech industry um, provides products to market um, because the the product certifi- certification um, process will obviously be in the EU and then we'll have to sell our products into the EU and potentially back to the UK. <laughs> so it's going to become very complex um, and we may even see, sadly, some medtech companies just go to the wall because of that. And, and that will be a real shame. So there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes uh, with the various trade bodies, um, the ABHI, for example, who uh, represent um, many of the, the SMEs in the UK uh, as a trade organisation. They're doing an awful lot to try and support the industry. So whilst I said right at the beginning, you know, it's a very vibrant, very, very growing industry, there's also this dark cloud hanging over us at the moment where we, we're just not sure how things are going to go in the future. So as I said, it's a very big topic of conversation. It's it's not one that that you know, I could spend hours probably going into an awful lot more detail, but it's it's going to be something that we're going to have to face um very soon. Um or, or we're already in the midst of it really, I suppose. So we'll we it's kind of watch this space really. <laughs> that's that's my best answer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's very insightful and it seems like there will be a lot of changes um, in the way we see this industry uh, moving going forward. So that brings me to the final question I have for you, Helen. Um, what are your thoughts on the government providing the NHS with enough funding to implement new technologies? Do you think it's something that's likely? Well, of course, I'm always going to say it's never enough. Um but I think where the disparity lies is between the money put into R&D, particularly within the NHS, versus the money put into adopting technology into the healthcare sector, if that makes sense. R&D spend um, by the NIHR, which is the National Institute for Health Research, which is embedded within uh, the this sort of NHS process in terms of developing technology, that's had billions of pounds uh, of, of funding over over the years compared to the millions spent on technology adoption. So there's a disparity between the effort that goes into research and the the effort that then goes into uh, adopting that technology. And I think that's that gap really needs to be addressed. So. I think this is why the recent policy reports from the IMACI are so important because I think that the IMACI has recognised that in order to ensure tech adoption, we need to have 
the engineers in place to advocate for that tech, but also to demonstrate the long-term value to patient care. So the cost-benefit analysis, if you like. Um, and I think if we could bridge that gap by understanding you know, the, the effort that goes into research as opposed to the, the value to then adopt that technology without the risk averseness of, of the NHS in some respects, um, I think that would really make a difference. So I would, I would certainly like to see a national strategy for technology adoption being developed by the government. And that's something that we've put forward in the policy statement is that the government really needs to consider having a national strategy for tech adoption across the NHS. And and engineers need to be at the heart of that, I think. And perhaps, as I said before, if, if COVID is going to be the catalyst for this, then that would be, you know, success really, to my mind. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is what we should be building on this platform of learning from the, the pandemic, understanding what we did right, what we did wrong, where our strengths and weaknesses are, and enabling engineers to take that opportunity forward by bridging the gap between uh, development and adoption. And I think that would be something that, that the engineering community could really step up to. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And once again, it brings us back to needing more engineers because engineers are at the heart of everything and our work is very important. So thank you very much, Helen, for answering all those difficult questions. I know I put you under pressure. <laughs> well, thank you, Carly. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you're obviously, you're a policy officer at the institution, so so you have to ask these difficult questions. And, and it's, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to share that with our listeners and to, to show how we, we go from addressing a problem, developing policy, and then, you know, turning that into, into practice and reality. So uh, I hope that, that that's given everyone a, a really good understanding of, of why biomedical and clinical engineering is so important to us. I think it absolutely has. And you've given us a lot of knowledge and information to take back and learn more from. So thank you very much for your time, Helen. Thanks very much, Carly. Joining me today to discuss clinical engineering in the NHS is Joe Young, Healthcare Science Workforce Lead for Health Education England. Joe's focus has been ensuring that there is a robust workforce pipeline within the NHS. She shares her thoughts with me on how we should encourage young people to take up a career in clinical engineering and what barriers the engineering community is facing in a highly risk-averse sector. I started by asking Joe to share her varied career experiences with us. Joe, it's really good to have you on the show today. Thank you ever so much for for coming on. Um, Joe, let's start with uh, an obvious question. Really, could you tell me and you could you tell our listeners a little bit about your career in healthcare and how you came to be a healthcare science advisor for Health Education England? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Helen. Um, yeah, my my career path wasn't as smooth as uh, you know some. Um, basically, I failed my A levels. Um, you know, I went, I had to change school. I went, I went to a really lovely school, did really well in my GCSEs. Um, but then I had to go to a college and it was a real sort of baptism of fire going, going to a massive college um, from my lovely school. And I just didn't do very well. I wanted to do both science and theatre. 
um, and they let me and the, the lessons clashed and you know all sorts of reasons why I failed anyway but I failed um, so I looked I was looking for jobs and I, you know science was what really floated my boat I kind of I originally had wanted to be a science teacher um, but I found this job as a trainee medical technical officer in radiation physics at King's College Hospital um, and that job it was a bit like an apprenticeship now um, it wasn't called an apprenticeship but it provided on the job training um, and having failed those A-levels, I was determined to never fail anything again. Um, and they sort of put me through um, BTEC and ONC and HNC um, and actually funded my training all the way up to master's level. Um, so I, I worked through 20-odd years at King's, became service manager of radiation physics. Um, and then I moved over into more sort of quality management, and that was for the whole department of medical engineering and physics. Um, and so that sort of brought me more into the, the world of medical engineering and working with clinical engineers. Um, and from there, I really got a passion for apprenticeships when the whole you know, the government changed the apprenticeship scheme. Um, I really got into that because of the way I had come in. You know, I was really passionate about people being able to learn on the job and it didn't matter what you'd done at school. You know, there were still prospects for everybody. Um, so I became the apprenticeship lead at King's. And that then sort of led me more into that world of education, health education. Um, and, and this role came up, Healthcare Science Advisor for Health Education England. Um, and um, I was in the right place at the right time, really. That sounds excellent. And and I I totally understand as well, because I, I was very unsuccessful with my A-levels, but it, it didn't stop me um, pursuing the, the subject of engineering. So we have quite a lot in common there, I think. Yeah. The more people you speak to, you know, the more people there are out there who are in the same boat. And I think that's one thing I try and get across when I do sort of talk to, to young people is that, you know, you may have this straight line trajectory in your mind, but having that plan B and having that resilience to, you know, to know what to do if things do go wrong um, is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would agree. Obviously, you've mentioned uh, that you're a healthcare science advisor. Not many people maybe listening know much about the healthcare industry. So so what's healthcare science and, and where do engineers and clinical engineers come into that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. We are we are quite niche. There's only sixty thousand healthcare scientists in, in England and well in the UK. Um so healthcare science is an, a bit of an umbrella term that um, covers 60 plus different specialisms, um, but it's all about where science meets health. Um, so it ranges from um, safely advancing diagnosis and treatment through to the use of technology in hospitals. Um, so we have four sort of themes within healthcare science. One is the life sciences, which is all about, you know, all the samples and bits of blood and, and bits they cut out of people and doing analysis on those. There's the physiological right. measurement, which is actually you know, taking signals from the body. Um, physical sciences, which is where clinical engineering fits, which is all around the equipment and you know ensuring that it's, it's safe to use, developing new equipment. Um, you know, my side of things with radiation physics, so it's making sure all the X-ray machines are, are performing correctly. And then the final and quite new theme is bioinformatics, which is all about big data and how we use data um, to almost predict what's going to happen with health. Ah, okay. So, so it's, the engineers sit within quite a, a large community of um, 
of other scientists and engineers then so it's it's quite a diverse range of subjects absolutely and although we're broken down into these 60 specialisms you know there's quite often a lot of crossover um you know and, and the engineers obviously being involved with the equipment kind of are involved across all of those pathways now you you mentioned that your role is a uh, healthcare science workforce lead for for the London covid response and i know you've been involved with uh with the nightingale hospitals now Addressing the workforce pipeline within the NHS must be a pretty challenging task, to say the least. But the engineering in- industry has been struggling to attract uh, people into the engineering sector for many years, and I think we still seem to suffer from from an image problem. If I, if I'm really honest, so so what is the NHS and particularly the healthcare science community and the clinical engineers? What are they doing to address this? And could the engineering community as a whole learn a thing or two from the NHS? Uh, that, that's interesting. I mean, we, we struggle as well. Um, you know, there's a huge assumption um, amongst you know, young people and, and teachers that unless you want to be a doctor or a nurse, then the NHS is not the place to look. Um, but we have 350 different roles in the NHS, um, and that could, could be, you know, clinically patient-facing or it could be completely back office, not seeing a patient ever. So there is a huge range there. Um, the NHS as a whole has a great careers website, which obviously healthcare science is part of and clinical engineering is, is on there too. Um, but I think it's really key that, that teachers and careers advisors are aware of the variety of roles. Um, you know, I think even from my own children, you know, they're, they're taught about the real traditional professions, but nothing else. Yeah. Um, so there's something about sort of getting out there, getting into schools, So with healthcare science being very niche, um, our community are absolutely great at getting out there and promoting um, careers to schools because they're all really passionate about what they do and they just want everybody to know about it. So in London, we posted um, an annual event called Reach Out for Healthcare Science, um, where we have 300 year 10s um, getting to do immersive experiences for a week across a range of hospitals. But unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we had to uh, cancel this year. But that has actually forced us to sort of look at how we can do that sort of virtually and digitally for the future. So actually, we should be able to involve you know many, many more students in that in the future, which is sort of really positive um, and exciting. I think what we really need is a character on a TV show. You know, everyone wants to be a midwife when <laughs> Call the Midwife comes on. So we need, you know, call, call the clinical engineer. I think, yeah, I think you're right on that one. That would be great. Yeah, so, so personally, I, I work with um, several university technical colleges across London. So these are sort of technical education schools for 14 to 19-year-olds. And they're a really good place to, to get in there because these youngsters have already expressed an interest in things like engineering or in health. Um, so, so they've already got a bit of a, an interest. Um, so it's really good to sort of get in and, and talk to them. I know you're very passionate about the UTCs and, and you know, not many people will know much about what a UTC does, particularly the fact that there are ones that do healthcare and engineering. And, and many of the, those young people are, are going to take up apprenticeships, both in the NHS and, and outside of that in the med tech industry. So do you think that we should be doing more to, to create those opportunities? And you've kind of touched on that uh, just briefly, but you know, what could we be doing? And when I'm I say we, I'm, I'm thinking of the institutions, particularly like Amaki and IPEM, um, you know, we, we could be doing a lot more. Are there any thoughts that you have on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually a member of IPEM myself um, and I know they do a huge amount of public engagement um, and coordinating schools visits for members. But I think what you know, particularly I've learned from the pandemic, as I said, with our, our reach out programme, 
is and also frankly the way that young people interact with the world i know how my kids are constantly plugged in um i think we need to do a lot more digitally yeah we're i think we're also need to get engagement from young people before they lose their interest i know there's lots of research that says you know if you haven't grasped their interest by age seven you know you've lost them forever um so i think there's something about trying to get them younger um you know maybe you know online material something that's maybe gaming related um you know anything that we can do that's going to spark that interest um as early as possible um you know maybe even a game around preventing pandemics yeah that sounds like a great idea i think we'll we'll challenge the uh the software developers out there to to create a game <laughs> i i think there might be one actually <laughs> but i think it involves zombies uh, i was gonna say I, I think my kids play one about zombies but you know why not why not pandemic flu or something <laughs> yeah absolutely now not many of our listeners are going to know this, but you and I have actually worked together for a short time, haven't we, on on the, the Nightingale hospitals? Yeah. So we were working to recruit engineers from outside the healthcare field uh, to come and support clinical engineering at the London site. So do you think that the creation of, of the Nightingale hospitals, for example, and particularly the rapid requirement that we've seen for engineers and medical devices has, has kind of raised the profile of engineering. Do you think that's going to, uh, as you mentioned, you know, get young people interested? And do you think the NHS has recognised that or have, as, as usually what happens, the engineers kind of slunk off back to their sort of darkened hospital corners and, and, and will carry on doing their work um, without, you know, really being seen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, just thank you to all those engineers that stood up. I mean, it was, it was really pleasing yeah, it was to amazing. see people coming forwards and volunteering. Um, I think, yeah, if one good thing has come out of this pandemic, it is the recognition of clinical engineers. Um, you know, as a workforce, they really stepped up. They, they got out of their, their you know, dark, dingy workshops and, and came forwards, um, you know, both within their home trusts and volunteering for Nightingale. I think over the years in trusts, the push has been to standardise models of equipment to ensure safety and safe practice. But with the pandemic came a, a sort of flood of new and novel equipment. So the engineers really had to step up, you know, A, to make sure it was safe to, to come into to the UK and, and to be used in our hospitals and, and to make sure that it was um, safety checked. And then to make sure that the clinical staff were actually trained and, and familiar enough to use that equipment. Um, within the Nightingale. So they really did sort of get out there. You know, some of them even stepped up for, for rapid upskilling themselves to, to work in the, the critical care environment, which was totally getting them out of their comfort zone um, and, and, and sort of putting them out there to, to be that sort of troubleshooting between the equipment and the patient. So, yeah, I think we've had some real leaders come forward, which is lovely to see. And we've been working yeah. with them sort of on, on their leadership capacity and, and to take that forwards um, you know, as a clinical engineering network for the future. Um, so should anything like this happen again, you know, they're, they're ready and waiting. Um, and I think it has certainly um, raised their profile within their home trusts um, and they're getting a lot more recognition now. Yeah, I think what I, what I noticed the most uh, is that the engineers felt more confident, actually, uh, in terms of talking about what they did and their role within healthcare, and that that was a really inspiring thing to see um, them really sharing their experiences, their knowledge, their best practice, um, and and encouraging others to to you know become part of that and working 
much more with parity with the the clinical uh, staff as well. So it was it was a really great experience, and and uh, yeah, it was great to work with you and the team on that. So let's talk a little bit about the the two policy statements that the RMIC uh, has just released, um, one on workforce and one on technology adoption. And we'll make sure that the links for those are in the podcast uh, notes. Now, these are, are both subjects that the institution's biomedical engineering division are incredibly passionate about, and that's why they've produced these uh, these documents. But do, do you think the, the institution has kind of hit the right note? Do you think they've got the right message? Uh, and do you think that uh, the institution should be pushing for engineers to, to be more involved in patient care, particularly the, the drive to create a chief engineer um, at board level? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it's really pleasing to, to see these documents coming out. You know, we often sit in in our sort of little NHS roles and, and think that nobody else is listening. So for, for an organisation like IMECI um, to be putting out statements like this, um, you know, almost on our behalf, that, that's really, really helpful. In terms of, um, you know, having the chief engineering role, I mean, the, the chief scientific officer for England, um, Dame Professor Sue Hill, has been pushing for many years for trusts to have um, a role which is called lead organisational scientist. So it's not necessarily an engineer, but it's someone from the healthcare science community to lead and speak for the whole healthcare science community within a trust. However, unfortunately, the uptake um, from trusts has been patchy. And in most cases, it's certainly not a board level position, but it feeds in via either the medical director or the chief nurse. And, and quite often, the individuals doing these jobs are, are doing it on top of the day job, you know, it's not a recognised role. Yeah. It's something that somebody said, oh, you know, you can add this to your role if <laughs> yeah. you want, you know, so it's not sort of been formally. I mean, there are some trusts that are doing it really, really well. Imperial, for example, you know, are an excellent model for this. Um, and and that, that sort of really raised the profile within that trust. So, yeah, I think anything that will support the community and getting the recognition that we need to help drive change and innovation safely and faster um, you know, particularly in, in the current world with, with everything moving quite quickly and, you know, with, with the pandemic and everything, um, you know, I think these sorts of roles are really key. So so there's still an awful lot of work for us to do then as a community uh, of engineers to to drive that forward. Uh, and I think that's that's really nice to know that we, we've still got a lot to do, but we also as a community need to work together to raise the profile and to bring the engineers to the fore. So we need to build on this platform almost that we've created for ourselves uh, during the pandemic and not let that uh, sort of slide to one side. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the time. This is the time for the engineers to rise, you know, that they are being recognised slowly for, for what they've been able to do in the pandemic. They have got the solutions to, to a lot of the problems uh, they just need that voice. I, I like that. Engineers should rise. Uh, <laughs> that's excellent. <laughs> now, in, in terms of the technology adoption report, what do you think are the greatest barriers engineer, engineers are facing in getting tech to be adopted at sort of size and scale within the NHS? Do you think there's anything that's, that's stopping that happen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it is around the lack of recognition of what clinical engineers can do. Um, you know, they're not just guys who sit in a workshop and fix stuff like mechanics. You know, they have a huge skill set and a way of thinking, particularly when it comes to sort of quality management systems and managing change um, that can enable and support the rapid technology adoption. 
but they have to be given the right airspace to do that. And I think that has been a barrier in the past. But as we mentioned earlier, that is slowly starting to, to sort of um, open up now. Um, the other thing in my experience is that trusts are quite risk averse. You know, quite quite rightly, we you know we have to course, protect yeah. our patients, um, but especially where it comes to sort of digital integration. And again, whilst I fully understand that we need to protect our, our digital networks and our data, there's often sort of blanket policies around you know technology and and, and that's basically preventing us from making the necessary changes. Um, you know, an IT department will say, you know, no, we, we can't accept any software that's not, you know, X, Y, yeah. and Z. But then that means we can't use a whole raft of equipment. So there's something there around the the, the, the integration of the equipment and the digital systems. Um, so better integration, again, of the clinical engineers and the IT colleagues, I think would certainly help with innovation. And especially if we look at the whole thing through the lens of quality management, you know, then we we are mitigating risk. We're we're ensuring that it's it's done in a safe um, and and thorough way. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it's fairly obvious that the the multidisciplinary roles of clinical engineers almost needs to be spread more widely, so that the communication between different departments can can link together more, so that there's there's a, a greater spread of of understanding and knowledge, so that the the barriers are, are kind of reduced if not dropped completely yeah absolutely and just something that uh, just occurred to me i mean I, you know i sort of went through the, the quality manager role um within my department at, at king's and you know my, my department had always had some form of, of quality management system from you know bs5750 iso 1345 you know you you name whatever the quality standard is we, we sort of had it and it's been really interesting stepping out of that department because i'd worked in that department for 20 odd years and so that was ingrained in me and my way of thinking. However, you sort of step away from that and you realize that the rest of the world <laughs> doesn't actually function in that <laughs> yeah. way. And I can't understand why, because it's such a, a great way to work. So, you know, I, I think if we can approach anything from that sort of quality management perspective, you know, it, it is done in a safe way. Yeah, there's definitely some opportunities to to share knowledge and and particularly on the quality side, um, share experiences and, and understanding and different approaches to be able to uh, to communicate mm. the, the the best way uh, of doing tasks and ultimately, obviously, um, ensuring that the patient has the best journey through the hospital. Absolutely. Well, Joe, I'm going to end with quite a tricky question, I suppose. Really, um, thinking about the the future, um, and and as a healthcare scientist yourself, you know. What do you think is going to be the most valuable or breakthrough piece of technology that's going to address patient unmet need? You know, what sort of things do you think are going to be a real advantage in the future and how are engineers going to be involved in those sorts of things? Oh, that's certainly a killer question, Helen. <laughs> um, you know, there's been some amazing advances in the last decade. Um, you know, gen genomic testing and personalised medicine has, has revolutionised a lot of um, sort of disease uh, management. Um, proton beam therapy for radiotherapy, uh, continuous glucose monitors for diabetes. You know, that's just a few of the amazing advancements we've had. Um, sort of, you know, in, in my career. Um, but I think the key really for, for going forward is around prevention and early diagnosis. So anything that can almost sort of meet the patient need before they become a patient, right. if that makes yeah. sense. Um, so we're already seeing some advances with things like apps for monitoring mental health conditions. But, you know, the biggest areas of need really for, for the NHS is around cancer, 
maternity, neonatal health, mental health, cardiovascular disease, and sort of obesity, diabetes, and dementia. So I think anything, any sort of wearables, accurate wearables, biosensors, um, in any of those areas with sort of, again, the associated secure digital platforms and the patient education that goes behind those, any of that's going to be key to sort of cracking, keeping people out of hospital. That, that's the main aim at the moment is, is how do we keep, how do we keep people safe and well and keep them out of hospital? Yeah, this is a good point. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I think we're going to see uh, a big growth in remote health monitoring, monitoring moved into sort of the GP so- surgery, those sort of things where where people can be monitored and 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 looked after in their community as opposed to in in acute care, and um, that should almost become like a last resort in some respects, shouldn't it? I suppose we Absolutely. we need to keep people healthy in their own environment, particularly as we've got growing aging population uh, and lifestyle illnesses that are going to be, you know, things that we're going to have to address before acute illnesses. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say any of those sorts of, you know, biosensors that can sort of, you know, almost pick up anything as it, as it happens, you know, or, or, or you know, things that can remind us to be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know I've got loads of apps on my phone telling me, oh, you haven't reached your step count and you haven't, you know, drink more water. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> But I think, you know, there, there is more that can be done um, if we can get the sort of right sensors and the wearables and the accuracy. I mean, I know I did have just a little anecdote for you. I had somebody, I was doing a, a careers um, thing in, in the atrium of, of one of the um, sort of NHS England buildings. And somebody came up to me with their their iPhone that, that could measure pulse oximetry. Mm. And I was like, oh, I hadn't seen one of those before. So I was like, she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's usually around 80%. And I looked at her and I was like, really? <laughs> and, and, you know, the, because it should be 90 odd percent, you know, you, if you've got a pulse oximetry of 80%, there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> but actually, if, it, if you're just looking at something for trending, that's fine. You know, so if she thinks hers is 80 and it stays at 80, that's absolutely fine. But it's around accuracy. So if we're going to use these things to accurately measure, you know, that the, the detectors need to get a lot better. Yeah. But also the way patients are interacting and doing it, make sure they're doing it properly. Yes, of course. Obviously, the user has got to be well-versed in how the piece of technology works as well. Joe, I think that is a fantastic place to to end our interview today. But thank you so much for taking part and, and really helping us to understand um, what healthcare science is, how engineers fit into that community. And it really sounds like whilst there's a lot of work to do, there is an awful lot of passion within the community to, to drive engineering forward to become a real focus of of care for patients so thank you for sharing your experiences with us today thanks for having me helen that's all for this month's episode next month the young members will be taking over the podcast they'll be focusing on what it's like to be a young engineer in 2020 and how the pandemic may have changed the way young engineers are thinking about their future careers. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us podcast at imeke.org.
the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.